Welcome to the Leadership Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jono White. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Clarity. We are an Australian-based consultancy that works with leaders around the world, and our passion is to invest in people to become everything they're meant to be in order to fill the world with healthy organizations that people love to work for and customers line up to buy from. The goal of this podcast is to invest in you and your leadership. If you're just joining us for the first time, then feel free to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there. The most popular being our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from around the world in all different sectors give their in-depth answers on leadership, what books they love, what they found most challenging, uh, the most meaningful stories, how they how they structure their time through the day. That's free, so go and check it out. And we'd love to interview you about your leadership. I believe you have advice from your experience, your context, and your life so far that is important and can help other leaders. It's also a great way to give back. It's free to get involved, and you can do so by going to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest, or just Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form that pops up. We have a free resource for you on our website. It's called Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook. It has interviews with 10 world-class leaders, and you can go to consultclarity.org. It's right at the top and get that today. Uh, we also have a daily email that we send out to over 15,000 leaders, and that email contains the highlights, our best content from our podcasts, our blog, uh, my book, uh, the books that we're loving that are out there about leadership, it's also the best way to get access to our masterclasses and workshops before anyone else. And there's also exclusive and limited uh, special options just for subscribers. And you can subscribe by going to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe. Now, my gift to you is to work incredibly hard to provide the best leadership content I can to invest in you and your leadership. So if you're finding our content helpful, if you find this podcast helpful, then your gift to me uh, could be this. If you, if you do find it helpful, then write a review or rate our content and make sure you subscribe or follow. I can't emphasize enough how helpful that is. It really does help us to get the word out there so we can invest in more leaders to become everything they're meant to be. It also means a lot to me personally when people like you and people in our community share our content on social media. So if you do that, then please do look for me, Jono White, to tag me and look to tag Clarity uh, on whatever platform you're on. And our team, including me, I, I'm always looking to see when people have mentioned us so that I can engage with you. And also we look at sharing content. So if you if you write something about something we've done, there's also a good chance we'll share that with our followers. So if you could do that, that is a massive, massive help as we try to invest in as many leaders as we can around the world. Last of all, you can check out my book about how to deal with difficult people even if you hate conflict. It's called Step Up or Step Out. It's available on Amazon. You can just look up Step Up or Step Out John O'White or you can go to store.consultclarity.org forward slash book and check it out there. I 
have coached leader after leader after leader. And in more than 50% of the sessions, this topic comes up. How do I deal with this person? I'm finding it really difficult. And, and I just want to find a way that doesn't blow up to do a really, just to have a difficult conversation, to lead them better. How do I do that? There's a three-step process that I outline in this book that I believe can help you. Okay, let's get into today's episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Today's guest is Simon Schrapel. Simon is Chief Executive at Uniting Communities, uh, which is located in South Australia. So Simon and Uniting Communities is sort of based from Adelaide, but works across the state of South Australia. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Thank you very much, Jono. First of all, I said to you before we clicked record that I, I love the diversity of our audience. We have leaders in all different sectors from all around the world. Um, so it's always great to find out what exactly you do. So tell us about um, Uniting Communities, what you do as an organization, and, and then also what what do you do as chief executive? Okay, I'll, uh, I'll do my best to do that as succinctly as I can. Uh, Uniting Communities is a really interesting organization. It's been around um, and had a few different iterations and names, but, but has existed in one form or another for more than 120 years. Um, and as the name suggests, sort of grew out of um, what was then the Methodist Church, what, what later became the the Uniting Church. Um, and, and whilst we're quite separate from the church in terms of our governance and management these days, you know, those, that's its uh, origins. We're a broad-based um, community and, and health service provider across South Australia. Um, but when people ask me what the organisation's about, I often describe it as a social justice organisation because we have throughout that 120 years been pretty passionate about you know, playing a part in trying to influence you know, more um, you know, equitable and positive public policy and legislation. And we, and we spend a lot of our time and effort, and certainly a lot of my time and effort goes into trying to influence you know, political thinking and public thinking about things that you know, create fairer and more just public policy. But um, a lot of people would know us for the services we deliver. and. And they really range across all demographics and pretty much all of society from working with children and families, um, including in the child protection and family support space, right through to people living with disabilities in the mental health space, you know, providing legal services, um, aged care services, um, and a whole lot more too. We, we have a big um, footprint in working with people with uh, drug addictions, but also in the homelessness space. Um, and there's probably a few other areas that I haven't mentioned amongst all of that too. So really broad based. So we have a lot of touch points in the community um, and, and operate right across South Australia. We have um, just over uh, a thousand staff and about 400 volunteers that operate in, in uh, those different areas that I've just outlined. Um, and my job as the chief executive, I have the great privilege of sort of leading the organisation. And, um, and I know we'll talk a bit more about what that actually looks like as we go through this interview. But um, you know, a lot of that is obviously keeping those services um, you know, running um, efficiently and more importantly, effectively to sort of achieve the outcomes we want for the people that seek our assistance um, for one reason or another. But also a lot of my time has spent, as I intimated earlier, trying to influence um, some of that public policy thinking. So, you know, I would spend a fair bit of time, you know, communicating with in one way or another um, politicians and those that, that also seek to influence um, 
politicians and their thinking. And, um, you know, it's a very interesting time at the moment because we've just come out of a South Australian election. Um, and so a lot of time and focus is now engaging with the new set of ministers and political masters. And we're in the midst of a federal campaign as we do this interview as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, that's something that I find very interesting about your role and uh, the sort of organisation you're leading is just the variety of stakeholders and passionate stakeholders um, across the public sector and you're dealing with uh, government. And of course, you know that government are then dealing with all of their stakeholders with, with what they're um, you know bringing to you. But then you've got... Um, yeah, it's just uh, it's something I find really interesting about about the sector. So let's let's find out a bit more about your story, Simon. I'd love to start by asking you, you know, go back to when you were growing up. You know, your childhood. What were some of the moments or even themes from that season of your life that really shaped you into the person and the leader you are today? Yeah, look, it's lovely to reflect on that, and, and it's a really interesting question. I mean, I've often, you know, thought back in terms of my early years. I, I um, was very fortunate. I, I grew up in a family um, which remained intact. That's always pretty important, um, and, and you know, it was um, was lovely to have, um, you know, a, a consistent sort of set of relationships with um, with parents and uh, siblings. I grew up in the Barossa Valley, which is a lovely area just north of Adelaide. Um, some people would know from their wine collection, probably. Um, and, um, you know, I had a pretty easy and comfortable upbringing, I have to say. I mean, nothing spectacular, um, you know, played lots of sport, you know, in, engaged in activities through primary and, uh, and high school in that community um, before I came to university. But, but if I think back about the things that sort of helped to shape me as, as to who I am today, my, my parents were small business people, uh, and I think I certainly you know, got the value of, of work, but also the value of, of, of having to do things. I mean, I think, you know, for my dad in particular, it was it was always instilled in me that if you were going to get things done, you know, and they didn't have a, um, a big staffing um, group that they had responsibility for. They probably had about 30 or 40 at the maximum at any point in time. But he always said, look, if you can't do it yourself, never ask somebody else to do it. And I think I learnt that, you know, early on and, and it has sort of stayed with me that is that, you know, whilst other people might be specialists in doing things and you want them to do the things that they do well, you know, if it comes to, as he'd always remind me, somebody to have to clean out the toilets, then you've got to be prepared to do that, not just to ask other people to do it. And, and I think that those sorts of ethics did stick with me. And I also think the value of money that, that I think is often instilled in small businesses and, and people that run small businesses has stuck with me. And so... You know, whilst I, I operate and oversee quite a significant budget in the organisation I lead now, um, you know, I, I think that you know, I value you know, setting budgets and, and meeting targets because it's important to do so. Um, because at the end of the day, money really does matter. And you know, we're fortunate that we have donors and, uh, and clients and customers and governments that provide money for us to deliver what we do, but we have an accountability to make sure that we deliver the best value for that. Um, and every dollar matters and counts. And I think that uh, when you get lazy about that is when businesses, um, whatever they might be doing, come unstuck pretty rapidly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are there any stories from your childhood that come to mind around work ethic? Uh, you know, it might be uh, in a sporting environment, it might be something around home and, and growing up. It might be, um, 
you know, uh, in terms of uh, it, it might be another arena of life from when you were that age. But any stories around having a work ethic that going above and beyond that really stand out? Yeah, I don't know so much about the work ethic, but it, it's funny as you ask that question. I was, I was sort of thinking back and, you know, maybe it was a bit later on. I can remember after I'd, um, when I was growing up and, and went to school up in the Brosser and then came down to university in Adelaide and then went overseas for, for several years. And, and when I first went to the UK, you know, not knowing anybody there, but, you know, doing what a lot of Australians did early in their life to go and, and um, you know, experience something different from what they grew up in. And I think particularly because I'd had, you know, at one level of a fairly comfortable and one might even argue a bit of a sheltered upbringing in many senses in terms of the community I, I uh, was brought up in and, you know, a lifestyle that was reasonably comfortable. Um, and, you know, it was, it was important in some ways to challenge myself. And I, I recount going there, I, I love playing cricket and I, and I um, always say that <clears throat> cricket was much better for me than I was for cricket, but I had the great privilege of playing you know, at a reasonable <laughs> level um, in different places, um, in the UK and Sri Lanka for a bit um, and back in Australia. And I can remember going over there and, and finding a cricket team. And the, and the first cricket team I found, it was a really interesting one in this club in in North London. And it was um, made up of, it was a very diverse a very diverse side. It had, you know, a number of Pakistanis, a number of uh, West Indians, um, Sri Lankans and, and English uh, of course, and I was the one Australian that came in there, and of course there was enormous tensions often between those different groups as to who would take precedence and take leadership, and, and I sort of found myself sort of assuming a leadership role very early on and ended up sort of leading that club for a number of years in, in a number of ways. And I sort of reflect back on that and think that, you know, a lot of leadership is about, you know, taking those opportunities and, you know, when they arise, and not sort of stepping back and waiting for somebody else to do them. And I can probably think of other times when those sort of opportunities have arisen in, in a career sense and uh, and you grab them and, and take them. And in some ways, that's what leadership is about. It's not all of what leadership's about, of course, but it is it is about being prepared to get into some areas that might be a bit uncomfortable and, and outside your, your zone of what you've been familiar with. But um, I want to sort of look back at that was a sort of early sign that, you know, I, I, there was there was an opportunity to take leadership to run that club not just be the captain but to sort of take leadership in terms of its you know everything from its finances to the way it managed itself which i never intended to do and i was probably only 21 or so at the time and so it was a good a very good early learning experience for me yeah what 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 are some of the specific leadership lessons you learned from sport that you've been able to apply in general leadership uh, um, so I was, I was having a little laugh to myself as you were asking that question. I, I think I, I think the ability to lose, um, um, and I don't think I'm a very graceful loser, but the great thing about sport, of course, is you never win all the time. Um, and, and sometimes you can go through periods where you're losing more than you're winning. Um, um, but being prepared to actually you know, front up again and, and take the next challenge on board. And I don't think there's any sort of greater lesson than, than that in sport because the reality is that no sports person is ever on top of their game uh, always and they will suffer losses and, and some of those will be inevitable, some will be because they've made mistakes. And so part of it is about learning from that but also being able to just be prepared to to actually accept those losses and come back again and play the game the next week. And, and I think it's the same with leading an organisation. I mean, you're not going to get things right all the time. I mean, you can... You try not to dwell on the things that you haven't got right, but there will be mistakes. There'll be, you know, in our game, the tenders won and tenders lost. And, you know, I 
Um, I never like losing, and, and I think there's always a bit of, you know, a, a lot of competition in for, for a lot of leaders. That's what drives them. But um, you don't want to get it to a point where those losses become so devastating that you can't actually pick yourself up and take the next opportunity because there'll be another one around the corner, you know, any day soon, and you've got to be ready and prepared for it. And I think that's what happens in sport. And sometimes in games, particularly like cricket, you know, it can ebb and flow a lot throughout a game. And so just sort of sticking with it is... Um, is pretty important and um, you know there are lots of times in you know in, in the job I do now where I think gosh it'd be nice just to walk away because things have got tough but you know you <laughs> don't do that because you just know a that's not what leaders do but but b that you know good times will come mm. yeah that's great no that well well said um, so fast forward after growing up um, or, or even in that time you've mentioned sport what are uh, you know, other leadership opportunities early in your life that come to mind? Um, they could be sport, they could be work, they could be, you know, where you were managing a group of people or responsible for a project. What, what were some of your other early leadership opportunities, Simon? Yeah, I mean, I go back to the point I made earlier is that, you know, sometimes these opportunities come to you and you've just got to, you know, see them and then seize them in a sense. And I, I gave the example of that, um, you know, that cricket team, uh, that club, in the UK, but even when I was working in the UK, um, you know, I, I didn't have a designated leadership position, but, mm. you know, I, I can remember sort of doing things that um, really took me out outside of a comfort zone. I, I you know, setting up you know, um, an Afro-Caribbean club um, for elders, you know, elderly Afro-Caribbean citizens um, and spending a lot of time just immersing myself in that culture and that group. You know, I think when, when chances came to do something that was a bit different, and it was partly perhaps being at that point an immigrant in the UK, I guess I could call myself, you know. Um, so I, I know when I first arrived and I was doing some work, social work at, uh, at that point, that there was a major strike of youth services um, and, and uh, young people were having to be placed all over the UK and you know, that caused a lot of disruption, clearly for them, but also for the organisation, the, the um, government agency I worked for at the time, to actually manage those placements. And so I just put my hand up and said, I'll, I'll manage all of the ones that are outside of London. You know, it was a great way of seeing the country. And I spent a lot of time doing that when they wanted somebody to be, you know, a social worker that could work, you know, overnights on call for any emergency. And it could be anything from, you know, a child protection issue through to an older citizen who had a, or a mental health crisis that needed to be dealt with. You know, I put my hand up and said, I'll do those sorts of shifts because it just gave me a lot of experience and exposure and things I'd never done before. Um, and so, you know, in each one of those sort of cases, you know, for me, it was a matter of just learning and immersing myself in different opportunities. When I came back to Australia, similarly, I, I you know, I got a job in a government agency um, you know, running or overseeing a number of their um, contracted programs out to the non-government sector. And... I said, well, you know, let's. I looked at them and thought, um, even though I didn't really have a position of authority to change them, sort of looked at, at how we could actually reform them and actually get better value uh, out of those contracts and set up new relationships that would actually improve, you know, they ranged everything from alternative care to homelessness. And, you know, that, that was a big change process and uh, it wasn't necessarily my job to do that. I, I think when I looked at others around me and my predecessors, you know, I think they went with the flow and it was easy just to sort of keep things going. I, I think always I've wanted to sort of challenge, to some extent, the status quo and, and to sort of find an alternative solution. And in effect, you know, I, and leaders come in all shapes and sizes and forms and, and have different um, attributes. I mean, for me, it's always been about 
you know, leading for change. Uh, and I sort of figure that if you're in, you know, ultimately when I got leadership positions where I had that authority to make a lot of those changes too, without having to always convince everybody around me that that was the way to go, it was always about seizing opportunities for, for change and improving things rather than just being able to manage the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, so from there, what were your, you know, there's often those watershed moments, those aha moments from that point, and it might even be re- more recently in your career. Are there any aha moments that come to mind where something happened and it really formed you? It really stuck in your memory. It taught you a really valuable lesson where something went well or something went horribly. <laughs> And, um, and and forever it'll be ingrained in your mind. Any of those moments that, that come to mind? Yeah, look, I think, you know, it's interesting. When I made the, the move to get out of government, um, you know, it was probably the best move of my, my career in many ways. And that's not to disparage government and people that work in it, but I knew that, you know, having the freedom to make, you know, bigger, bigger changes and things that I had greater control over, I needed to get outside of that environment. Um, anyway, I was working at it and... Um, there was an opportunity to um, to bid to become the the chair or the president, I think it was called at the time of the uh, the peak welfare body in South Australia, SACOS. Um, uh, and in fact, I later then actually became the president of ACOS, the National Council for Social Services, as well, which you know gave me a lot of inroads into um, political circles and and other you know, major sort of federal policy making circles, and and had some great experiences in that role, but. Just to go back to, to taking on that job, it was a contested position and I'd only not long been out of government and probably some of those changes that I'd helped to um, to initiate and, and to implement when I was in government that impacted upon non-government agencies who got funding out of government probably saw me, in a, many of them saw me in a fairly negative light because I had sort of shook the tree and many of, some of them had lost their funding, some of them had had funding redirected or at the very least had had to do different things as a result of the reforms I'd helped to lead when I was in government. So I wasn't necessarily the most popular person. And I can remember having to do a pitch to, I don't know, there was about 30 people that made the, the selection of who was going to be the next president, was on their policy council and their and their board. And, um, you know, I, I, um, I must have done a good enough pitch because they actually accepted me. But um, And many of them came back later and said, look, most of us didn't trust you, but you... We, we knew that you would actually bring about change and that you actually had a, a sort of strength of conviction that the organisation needed in terms of its renegotiations and lobbying back into government. So it, you know, it sort of once again taught me a lesson, I think, to say that go into areas of, you know, at that time of relative discomfort and be prepared to sort of take that, that challenge on board. Now, you know, would have I learned as much as if I didn't get up? Maybe. Uh, I would have learned some different things probably and, and um, I, I, back to my sporting experiences, uh, I'm sure I would have dusted myself off and had another go pretty soon after that. But I've probably used that to sort of propel myself in, in taking up lots of opportunities of leadership within the sector beyond the organisations that, you know, I am I am the chief executive of, of you know, now. I'm, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work in terms of chairing or leading organisations at a governance level. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm currently the chair of Food Bank in South Australia and have been for a number of years. Um, uh, the current chair of Families Australia, a national peak body in, in the sort of family policy, family and children's policy space. Um, as I said, previous president of ACOS. So I've taken a, um, a lot of opportunity to to assume, not to assume, because clearly you have to actually have a um, 
um, you know, a, a position of some credibility to take on those roles, but being prepared to sort of um, sometimes go out of my comfort zone and take things on and take responsibilities on because A, I think I can make a contribution, um, and B, to be quite frank, I enjoy doing those things because leadership, because if leadership's not fun, then in a sense it's probably not coming naturally and you're not very good at it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think it should be fun too. Um, it, it can be hard though, as and you mentioned that, and I love how you talked about that's uh, that time where you were disrupting and we love the word transformation we loved i want to be a disruptor you know i want to be a disruptive <laughs> leader until you're the one <laughs> who it has to actually face <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> and and or, or if you're leading transformation someone sits across from you and says you know what this this change that you think is necessary is costing me this this and this and you go that's valid and true and i still need to to do it and and you lose sometimes um uh, on another podcast episode, I was chatting with someone just about that that um, wanting to be liked that we that we have as leaders. Uh, I'm interested to know how how did you manage that, and what have you learned from that season about how to lead with conviction, but also with humility when you are making unpopular decisions. Yeah, it's 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 a really good question because I think you know that balance is so fundamental and. Um, you know, if you're not sensitive, and you know, I, I guess, I mean, a you've got to have that sensitivity is is really part of your genuine personality. It's not something you can fake it. I mean, I think you know, I have probably an advantage too of having done you know my my base degree in social work. I've done management qualification subsequently, but you know, I'm a, I often say I'm a social worker at heart, and that makes me very much a, a people person and and an orientation to understanding what impacts. The decisions we make uh, have on on others um, and people. Whenever you're doing change, uh, whether it's transformational or even small change, you know um, it, it's going to create discomfort, and there are going to be people that are going to feel that they're going to have a loss. And if you're not sensitive to that and prepared to listen and accept that, that's not to say that you don't you shy away from it because of that. I, I you know, if you have the courage and conviction about what you're doing as as being the right sorts of change, then you've got to follow through on that. I, I you know, was part of making a major, um, leading a major development here in Adelaide of, a, of a, something that I feel enormously proud of, a, a development called U City, which is a 20-storey multi-use building in the, in the heart of the city uh, here in Adelaide, um, which has got you know, mixed use and has won lots of awards for lots of different things, including its enormous diversity and um, its uh, commitment to carbon neutrality and a few other things too. But you, you know, to get to that point, um, there was a very controversial decision that had to be made um, of knocking down a, a heritage-listed church. Now, it, it drew a lot of criticism within the South Australian community, um, you know, from certain parts of the media and others that felt that it was something that um, shouldn't mm. be left alone. And you know, I had to understand what people felt about that and um, not dismiss those those concerns. Um, but not be swayed to say we couldn't do it because you know it was more important to preserve something that wasn't being utilised um, and wasn't really adding a lot of value to the community. But you know people just love because of its history. So you know you do just need to you know be prepared to sort of push through on things, but never lose sight of the people that are impacted adversely. You, you win a major tender, it tends to mean you know, somebody's lost it. And so when that happens, if you're not sensitive to that organisation and the people in that organisation who are suffering, and, you know, I've lost things too, and I, I think in some ways without loss you don't actually appreciate just how tough 
things are when you actually bring about change, whether it's forced change or not. And, um, and so that balance is always critical. Yeah, I think that's I think that's well said, and I, and I do think uh, I, I don't know if you'd reflect like this as well, but for me so far with with my career, it's been the hardest moments that I would never want to repeat um, that have probably informed and and formed me more than any other moment, so that I now have the empathy uh, to work with a leader who is trying to deal with. Um, you know, how to lead a team and is really struggling with um, aligning a team. I know how hard that is. I know what it's like when a team's not working well and you're pulling your hair out going, I just don't know what to do differently. And I'd never want to go back there. <laughs> but no, they're not moments you learn from joy, that. are they? But they are, you know, <laughs> but, but, but pain is an important part of the process, um, unfortunately. I, I thought a dear friend of mine once, you know, said that, you know, if you haven't been sacked, I, I'm probably repeating a quote that somebody else made, you've never really had to sort of, you know, examine your career and, you know, and, and you end up becoming much more successful out of it. But, um, you know, but I think what they already talked to is that adversity plays its part. And, um, you know, sometimes that adversity is something that comes to you because, of circumstances, uh, but often it's because you've actually taken a chance and it hasn't come off. Yeah, I think I think that's what young leaders. I think that's a message that gets lost, or maybe it's just not heard. But I think for young leaders, there needs to be this idea of celebrating failure that we talk about in corporate and you know and, and in across the world. We want to create environments where people can try things and fail. But I think leaders need to realize. Um, you know, don't don't plan your linear leadership journey from 20 to 60. Meet any great leader and you'll find that their journey was never linear and they made mistakes. They dropped the ball. They had failures that, yes, they're painful, but they, they're they so important. And I, I feel like for me, that's something that I'm learning is go out, give it a go. Give it your best and, and do your due diligence, but don't don't be afraid to drop the ball and make mistakes because that's what's going to actually make you a, a better leader. And um, one of my favorite anecdotes that someone told me on this podcast, actually, Simon, I, I can't remember who mentioned it, but they said that um, Warren Buffett, when he puts someone in charge, is looking to hire a CEO for one of his biggest companies in the portfolio, He one of the things he would always ask is, uh, I, I want to know that they've made a massive mistake before. He never wanted to put someone in those sort of roles who had never really, um, could never really point at a at a big mistake or a big a really troubling season because he's like, I want to see how they handled that because um, I don't want someone to have their first ever experience where they really <laughs> drop the ball with one of my really big with, companies. With one I, of my companies, no, I understand yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. A bit of a different take on. Um, just being being real enough to go yeah it's it's not easy though it's easy to talk about but boy it's, oh, it it's is really hard about. we often talk about how you celebrate failures but it's it is one of the hardest things to do because and i think that's a real test of leadership too is that you you know you've got to really control yourself when something goes wrong and and i think you know it's easy you know under pressure to start pointing the finger and and finding um, other people to blame for something uh, and that's the worst leadership quality you could you could expose i have to say and you know, I, I um, nobody wants crisis. I, you know, just under a year ago, we had a major, we like to call a cyber incident. It was a cyber attack, and you know, it was enormously mm. disruptive for the organisation. 
And I remember um, somebody at the time who was heading up our area, uh, our ICT area, saying, you know, when it was first discovered and, you know, it was always on a long weekend, so, you know, I have to say, just coming out of Easter, you always feel a little bit anxious at the beginning of a long weekend when yeah. the next attack's about to come. Um, <laughs> and we've learnt lots from it in terms of security and, uh, you know, further improvements we've needed to make. But, you know, they said to me, um, you know, the organisation I was before, you know, if, if something like this had happened, I know I would have spent all weekend getting bought out by the managing director or the CEO about why did I, you know, why did it happen and how did you let it happen and all of that. And he said, thank God you didn't respond that way. And I said, well, you're right. I mean, you know, was I happy getting the phone call early one morning saying this had happened on a long weekend? No. Could we do anything about it at that point in terms of stopping, you know, the incident have occurred? No. Did we have to get on and do something? Absolutely. And that's mm. what became the focus. And I said, I'm not, you know, blame's irrelevant and it doesn't matter. You know, we'll learn from it. And there might have been things um, clearly that we could have done differently that, that might have prevented it and may not have prevented it. What's more important is how we actually pick ourselves up and deal with it. That, that's what actually will, will make the mark for us. You know, and, and I think, you know, I remember an old adage that somebody talked to me about, you know, about complaints and, you know, it's a similar issue, isn't it? You know, you don't want to never get complaints because how do you ever actually learn about the sort of things that as an organisation you should be improving upon? But on the other hand, you don't want to be besieged by complaints because you do, you know, your organisation's not doing a good job because that's clearly an indicator of, um, you know, of consistent failures. But but people often appreciate what you've done to fix something much more than just providing a pretty blamange or ordinary service in the first place. So if a mistake's happened, but you've worked your butt off to actually fix it and make that person feel better. Um, you know, and we had to do that with a lot of stakeholders that were impacted through that incident to assure them that we had things under control. And, you know, I think sometimes you come out of that better than not never having done that or had that experience before. It's easy to say after the event, of course. <laughs> <laughs> not to say that I'm suggesting I'd like another one anytime soon. <laughs> no, but I think that's the tension. I think that that is the tension um, that... It's really hard to lead from that tension, but I think it sounds like what your uh, the person on your team in ICT was reporting back to you was that you walked that tension well, mm. and and I think that's something that um, particularly uh, young leaders or, or leaders who are starting out is finding that um, you know finding that ability to be early with feedback two way you know that's. Uh, one thing that comes up a lot on this podcast is that the higher up you go in an organization, the less uh, or the more control you have over the feedback that you're getting about yourself. So um, it's it's one of the greatest challenges as you get more authority, more responsibility as a leader is to actually look in the mirror and go, okay, how do I get the feedback that I need to get? How can I give feedback early to people and and not let things build up? And then when something does happen, like you just described, instead of looking for blame, how can we pick ourselves up and respond really well? And um, there's so much in that that if, if we can if we can do well in those areas, I feel like that's got to be one of the keys to being the sort of leader that people really want to follow. Absolutely. Well, I um, am having so much fun... Um, chatting with you, Simon, I've got a handful of questions, the Leadership Express questions. Are you ready? Oh, okay. I'll brace myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, you can probably tell I'm a pretty gentle guy, really. No, so. I know. That's right. <laughs> I'm not feeling no. too interrogated. That's okay. That, 
The hard-hitting interrogation is the next. I'll invite you back for episode two. And Jono, the the in, in investigative Jono journalist. Jono goes to the jugular. I can, I can, I can see it. As a, as yeah, a so, so in my personality. Anyone who knows me knows that's really me. Um, okay, so the first question, what is a book that you've gifted to other people? Oh, it's good. Look, um, one that um, we've used a lot in this organisation is um, uh, Frederick Lalu. I, I pronounced his name correctly. Reinventing organisations, uh, we've used it. You know, I, look, I'm not a big subscriber in you know saying here is the book or you know here's the script that everybody's got to follow, but we've really pushed this notion of self-organising teams, and we've got a long way to go to try and do that. I mean, organisations you know, as they get larger naturally develop their hierarchies and you know positions of power and influence that people like to hold on to and we're really trying to challenge that and and push the responsibility and accountability and decision making down as far as we can and you know there's a few books in that sort of genre that sort of talk about organizations that have really led on in that in that domain and um, have really turned not turned their organizations around but actually made them substantially different from the way organizations in you know but most of us are accustomed to tend to sort of manage their business and and it's a hard thing to do because you know, you're telling people having sort of fought all their life to actually get into management positions that now's the time to let go. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't come naturally. <laughs> but it's been a it's a good read and, and there's a few others in that genre too that sort of talk about, you know, from a company's point of view how they've managed to actually put that into into practice. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, a great recommendation. Uh, what what's a big problem or challenge that you see leaders in your sector you know in the non-profit sector what's what's a big challenge for leaders right now in your sector oh yeah look um last year i was part of helping to organize and run a major um to a conference here in south australia on on sort of leadership in the sector and um at it i I gave a bit of a presentation on what i thought that you know the, the biggest challenge that was facing us which was this whole this whole sense of how do you get a, a balance between the passion for why we exist which is to actually create a better world in one way or another for, for, you know, particularly for people who are, you know, disenfranchised or, you know, vulnerable in one way or another. Um, but how do you, how do you keep true to that, that passion to make that sort of change and run a big business? You know, it, it, dare I say, it's almost the, you know, the balance between passion and profit. And I think the commercialization of our sector, you know, through a lot of the big funding changes, um, in aged care and disability in particular, and, and this move to a much more market-driven model um, of consumer-directed care, you know, has meant, you know, the good thing about that is it's given people greater levels of choice um, uh, to an extent over the sort of services and the sort of support they get and control over the resources that get spent on that. But um, it is changing the way organisations are. I, I think it, it's... It's making them more timid and less likely to critique governments and you know bad public policy and um, you know there's been you know even challenges um, uh, at a sort of governance and a, and a um, oh, I don't know um, sort of looking at how organisations can even you know make those sorts of public criticisms and uh, and still actually be not for profits and keep their charitable status so you know all of those sorts of things have been under challenge but mm. you know, I, I think it is getting that balanced. Right, because you've got to run a tight ship. You've got to getting back to my earlier comments. You know, money does matter, and you've got to make sure that you're, um, you know, you're making a sufficient surplus to sort of keep the business going. But you, if you do that at the expense of forgetting why you actually exist, uh, then I think we should get out of the business altogether and let others run it. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, thank you for sharing that. So do you have any favorite questions that you ask? You're sitting in a one-on-one with someone, you're, you're with a team, you're running a workshop, uh, you're, you're sitting with some stakeholders from government or elsewhere. Do you have any favorite questions that you find yourself asking a lot? I don't know if it's a favourite question, but I, but what I always like to know is is what drives people. I mean, in some ways, that's what this whole interview is about, isn't it? <laughs> From your perspective, <laughs> but it's what but it's what I like to know because I always if you if you know what people's passions are, the things that really matter to them, then in a sense you can respond to them in a way that yeah, they'll appreciate, which is pretty important, um, and they're more likely to do things and and um, you know a develop a relationship that's actually going to be productive with you. But, you know, if people uh, find out that they're interested in, that you're interested in them and what drives them, um, and so, you know, there are different questions that get to that point. But, you know, some a lot of our conversations are very transactional um, and, and I, it's something we lose the sort of, the, the person, <laughs> the, the personality within, mm. you know, the, the dialogue and the, and the relationships we establish. So understanding what those drivers are for people and, you know, that could be their passion for, I don't know, the footy side they support, to, you know, what their political views might be, whatever it might be. But yeah, everybody's got passions. And understanding it just, I think, changes the whole dynamic when, you, when you're relating to someone and, and you're more likely to form a relationship that's going to be, you know, productive and, uh, and effective. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, are, there any, are there any commonly held beliefs about leadership that you passionately disagree with? Oh, yeah, probably. The, I mean, the one that sort of suggests that leaders have always got to be out the front, you know, uh, you know, rallying the troops behind them and that all the inspiration comes from the leader is probably <laughs> the most obvious ones. And I think a lot of our literature historically has probably pointed to leadership in that sort of sense. And, you know, the examples you see on the battlegrounds or even on sporting grounds sometimes of that person out there being the you know, the most courageous, you know, and the one that's sort of leading from the front. And I'm not suggesting leading from the front isn't important, and clearly it is. But but most change, effective change, happens because you corral people around you um, that have got the potential to actually deliver and you free them to do it. So in some ways, the best leadership is getting the hell out of the way of people's um, <laughs> ability to do things. And, you know, in some ways, that sits behind the self-organising team stuff too. I mean, I, I couldn't do the work that our care workers do in, in a, um, one of our nursing homes or, you know, in counselling or any of the roles, you know, and even some of them I've been trained for, I'd really struggle to do nowadays. Um, mm. But having good people that can do that and backing them in to do that is much more important and letting them make the decisions about what's right um, in terms yeah. of air interactions with people is, is much more important. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, and, and I do I do agree that um, more often than not, uh, different leaders struggle with different things, but for a lot of leaders, just getting out of the way. And and um, I, remember, I remember a great analogy once someone talked about, which was this idea of the, the seagull. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, which is the... It's, it's everything we don't want to be as a leader because the seagull flies around far away and then it swoops in and um, uh, just uh, craps all over everything and then sw- and then leaves again. And leaves again. Still, still <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the same process. You're right. That's right. Yeah. And, and so it's, I, I think we struggle to find that, to, to find that balance. It's easy. 
I, I've definitely seen leaders who do that. They get they get removed, but then they come in and they swoop in, and it's not positive for anyone. But I think getting out of the way, really spending the time to set people up well for mm-hmm. success, and then getting out of their way, is for a lot of leaders. I think that's that can be that could be a really helpful. No, step it's one, to it's one of the great challenges, I think, because often you feel you know, and I think early on in your in your leadership um, life, you you know you're, you're wanting to prove yourself, you're wanting to actually you know, make your interventions and do stuff and, and, you know, that eagerness can be an advantage. But I think, you know, when you take over from others, you're disempowering them and, and you're not going to actually um, help them to sort of stay on board and, and to continue to contribute because I'll say, well, okay, if you want to do it all, do it all. Um, uh, but that's, you know, you can never achieve things um, at scale that way, of course. So, you know, that's that's a bit pointless. So, you do have to bite your lip and step back and, and let people do stuff, but you've still got to work out where you can add value. Um, you know, otherwise you might as well not be there either. So, you know, and sometimes that's just being a sounding board. I mean, I, you know, one of the, the, the most important things I think you can do, um, and, and I think that's one of the things I've probably been okay at doing, um, is just asking the right questions of people when they've got ideas, just sort of challenging them from some different perspectives so they can actually see what they're actually wanting to implement or, or do um, from a number of different perspectives before they do it. And so you're helping them through some of that sort of problem solving and analysis to let them make the right sorts of decisions and then to enact them. And um, you know that's a really important role I think we can play as leaders in, in helping people to make better decisions. I agree. Um, so last question for you uh, as we wrap up, if you could only give one piece of leadership advice to a young leader, what would you say, Simon? Uh, know your style really know your style and then use it and use it and use it. Now, you know, I think we do a lot about, you know, find your weaknesses and you do need to be open and aware of those and and work on those. But we've all got a strength. We've got an innate strength in something. You know, it might be doing presentations. It might be, you know, the way we do negotiations. It might be we're, I don't know, good at consultation. We're good at, you know, problem solving. But know it and and make sure that you really play to that strength and, and use it well. Um, in the way that you lead because you know that's what's probably got you to that to the point of having an opportunity to be a leader um, so don't give that up and, uh, and and make sure you um, you know you really understand what that is um, mm. and you you, know, you continue to refine it and improve upon it but you know we're not ever going to be good at everything um, and, and I know it's lovely to be a great all-rounder um, and you do need to learn a lot of other skills too to actually be an effective leader but you know, it's the thing people will remember for the thing that you're actually, you know, you're really good at, <laughs> um, <laughs> by and large. So, you know, make sure that you you know it and you're proud about it and you, you know, you're, you're able to really demonstrate and make best value and use of it. Yeah, that's uh, that's wonderful advice. Uh, so for people who've really enjoyed hearing from you um, and might want to find you online on LinkedIn or Twitter or find out more about Uniting Communities, uh, where can people find you online? Yeah, well, I mean, on the website, just at unitingcommunities.org, um, uh, uh, you can, I'm very happy if people want to email me. I, I'm probably still do more emails than I should in my life, but if people want to find <laughs> out more and make contact, so it's just Simon S at unitingcommunities.org, so um, pretty straightforward, or, or get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Um, and, and if you're in Adelaide, you know, come to the fabulous U City, which is at 43 Franklin Street in the in in the city. But uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from anybody. And and you know, 
Yeah, I think you, you set out by sort of talking about how we learn from all sorts of different people from different walks of life and in different businesses and I found that too. I, I get a, a lot more sometimes out of talking to colleagues from other other walks of life and, and other sectors than just being, you know, I spend a lot of time with people in my own sector of course but, you know, there's so much more to learn from what people have experienced outside of our normal day-to-day routines. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. It's one of the reasons I love doing this podcast so much is uh, knowing that, um, you know, whether it's a head of school or a CEO of a not-for-profit or a CEO in banking in Europe um, that, uh, or an entrepreneur, a small business. I had someone on who is a an entrepreneur in Bali and has yoga um, teachers around the world helping people to get sober Um through yoga it's and and i love the fact that they're completely different you would never think um and yet the leadership and and business principles really do overlap and we can learn from each other and and uh, i love coordinating those unlikely conversations uh, so I, I really believe there'll be some people today uh, from today's uh episode simon who listen in who wouldn't otherwise have had the chance to chat with you who will take something out of today and and really believe that maybe just the thing they needed to hear to help them through this next season uh, was something we chatted about today. Um, On that note, I do want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Uh, I know you would have loved today. It's been, I've had so much fun, which is, uh, I always say I'm listener number one, and I've just enjoyed hearing Simon's stories and and wisdom. Don't forget, I also have the John O'White Leadership Podcast and the Leadership Question of the Day Podcast. They're two other places that I put leadership content that you can invest in your leadership. Uh, But I want to finish today by saying a massive thank you to you, Simon, for being generous with your time and your stories. And uh, yeah, I've just um, some really great leadership themes that I really deeply believe in. I think you articulated really well today. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot, John. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast as much as I did. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there, including our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from all over the world in all different roles, in different industries, answer these seven questions on leadership and leaders give these in-depth answers around how they spend their time, uh, a book that's been significant for them. It's just a gold mine. It's completely free to access. So go to consultclarity.org and look for that. We'd also love to interview you about your leadership. I believe your experience, your life, your context means that you have advice on leadership that other leaders can learn from. Yes, you, if you're going, not me. Well, no, I really believe you would have something to add. So if you're looking for a way to give back, it's completely free to get involved. And we would love to interview you through the seven questions on leadership. You just go to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest or Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form and get involved. We have a free resource on our website called the Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook, 10 world-class leaders giving their thoughts on leadership, and that's completely free. It's available on our homepage, consultclarity.org, right at the top. So make sure you go and get that and download it today. And we have a free daily email that you can subscribe to. We send this out to over 15,000 leaders from around the world. 
and uh, it contains the highlights of content from our podcasts, our blogs, um, our books, books we're reading. It's got the best content and it gives you exclusive, limited, early access to our masterclasses, workshops, new products, special offers. It's all for our subscribers. You can go to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe and join 15,000 other leaders. And you know, my gift to you is to work really hard, particularly through the Leadership Conversations podcast. I have been blown away by the quality of the leaders and I'm learning as much as anyone in doing these interviews. So I'm having a great time. And my gift to you is to keep lining up the best leaders I can to invest in your leadership. Your gift to me, if you're finding this helpful, there is something that you could do that would help us out massively. And that is to write a review and to leave a rating for our podcast or wherever you're watching or listening to this. I can't tell you how much that helps us out. Also subscribe or follow. It really does make a difference in helping us to help more leaders become everything they're meant to be. Another thing that means a lot to me personally is when I see our community share our content. So if you do share this or any other piece of content on social media, then thank you and and please do that. And look for me, John O'White, or clarity and tag us in your post. Our team is always looking for posts to engage with from our community. And there's also a chance that we'll share your content uh, to go beyond and share it with our followers. Last of all, you can check out my book. It's called Step Up or Step Out, How to Deal with Difficult People Even If You Hate Conflict. I wrote this book because 50% of the coaching sessions I have with leaders, this topic comes up again and again and again. And it's this idea of how do I have this difficult conversation? How do I lead this person better when I'm finding them difficult? Or in some cases you look and you say, I think I might be leading a difficult person. They're just quite difficult to lead or I'm finding them quite difficult to lead. So there's a three-step process that I unpack in step up or step out. And the amazing thing, and I've literally done this myself and I've heard it anecdotally from other leaders as I've coached them, is that if you follow this process, you will see that person step up and change their behavior or make a decision, which is to step out some of the time. Uh, 95% of the time, people will step up or step out in just four weeks. And I stand by that. It's uh, You have to read the book to understand, but uh, I really do believe in it and I've experienced it firsthand. It works. So you can go to Amazon, look up Step Up or Step Out John O. White or store.consultclarity.org forward slash book. Well, thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back with a new episode next time of the Leadership Conversations podcast. And I hope today has helped you to take another step towards becoming the leader you're meant to be. See you next time.